You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, which is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle. Today I have with me Asa Kamer, the producer of Carbon Removal Newsroom, our, our sister podcast, which is an amazing weekly, bi-weekly news panelist kind of show, all the latest in carbon removal. Is that what you say? Something like that? Well, it's three times a month, so there's not really a good short word for, for that. that. Yeah. Is there? Try monthly? <laughs> Try, yeah, try monthly. It's a tri monthly show, and uh, you guys should check it out. <laughs> the world's best tri monthly carbon removal news podcast. People will be so curious about what that even means, they'll have to Google it. <laughs> and Siobhan Montoya Lavender from Thanks a Ton, and also Nori's Meme Lab, which I don't know if you, you follow at Carbon Removal Memes on Twitter, but Siobhan and Ace actually both work on that. Among a if couple you don't ones. follow, why do you not like? To laugh and carbon removal? <laughs> do, you, do you not like to laugh or like lightly chuckle and then scroll past? <laughs> or not laugh at all and just go, hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's some of those. I would, too. <laughs> I'm excited to doom scroll some memes now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all right. Also, the there. yeah, go ahead. Also with us today, we have Mike Allen, who is the chief science officer, and Patty Estridge, who is the CEO of a wonderful a new startup called CB Generation. And they're going to be talking to us today about their project and about how we're going to use the power of seaweed in the ocean to reverse climate change. Welcome. Thanks for having us. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of your technology. And I particularly like, as you've described it as like a Pac-Man style robots that eat seaweed. So what does that mean for our audience? What, what, is, what is this technology you've developed and, and why do you see its potential? <laughs> that is a, that's a good opener so I describe it usually as like a Pac-Man meets a Roomba so it's <laughs> kind of a big Pac-Man like mouth but it does the function of a Roomba in the ocean for the stinky seaweed um, blobs that we've seen coming through in the Central Atlantic region called Sargasm. Anything to add Mike is that is that a pretty succinct synopsis? It's a great synopsis but uh, I don't like the Pac-Man analogy I like Wally because I think it's a bit more <laughs> of a lovable robot so we're Ooh, a bit more like Wally, I think, where we collect up the seaweed and then put it in the deep sea. Oh, so you just need to cube it. You need high, to cube it now. Exactly. <laughs> Mike, Mike likes his technology cute. <laughs> it's going to googly eyes and, and, and be lovable. So I think a lot of what we're doing, is you really have to involve the public and to get the public to connect to what you're doing, you have to sort of um, really make it engaging. So it's not just about having a successful technology. It's also about telling our story as well. Which public? Do you mean just general environmentally concerned people or locals where you're you're doing this activity, both? Yeah, both. I think you, you, we've got to engage with sort of the local communities that we're, we're helping out. But ultimately, this is a global pl- problem and we, we need to engage with the global community. So having, having things that people can understand, our process is very, very simple. We, have, we can explain that and, you know, you can explain that to a child as well as an adult. So... That's really important for us. Yeah, let's let's zoom out for just a minute and tell the audience what is the virtue of sinking seaweed for those maybe maybe people have heard of Running Tide or other companies maybe they haven't. What is the virtue for carbon dioxide removal of sinking seaweed? So um, in this case, there's a couple of virtues, I suppose. The first is that carbon dioxide removal 
as we know, probably most people who are listening to this know that we would need to get to a very, very huge amount every year, around 10 billion tonnes by 2050 of additional removal from atmosphere. So carbon dioxide coming from the atmosphere and, and going somewhere that isn't the atmosphere anymore. And for that, seaweed and using oceans can be incredibly scalable. That's a massive number. So if you're looking for something that's going to get to that point of like one, two, three, maybe more gigatons a year, then seaweed and biomass in the ocean is one of the things that can be really scalable. And at the same time, we have this enormous, massive amount of seaweed, which is growing naturally as a response to climate change in the Central Atlantic, which in an area called the Central Atlantic Sargasm Belt, or it's now being termed that because there's so much sargasm growing in it. And that's what's now being talked about as the seaweed blob, which is twice the width of America at the moment, Mike. Is that right? Something like that, yeah. I think about 5,000 metres it's absolutely ginormous and it's it's happening because of climate change because of fertilizer runoff soil runoff sewage runoff and different changes that we're seeing in in the global ecosystem and that sargasm is coming into coast on a massive massive scale it's rotting creating anoxic zones dumping out a whole bunch of arsenic because it's really good at absorbing arsenic as it's growing and that is a really, really good candidate for us to stop that from happening and to conduct carbon dioxide removal with our Wally Roomba Pac-Man, which we actually call the Algorae. <laughs> and I call the one, our prototype is Alfie. So Alfie the Algorae is going to grow up and learn how to intercept and sink this stinky seaweed before it can get to the coast and cause problems. And through doing that, we can learn a lot about what the parameters of carbon dioxide removal with seaweed more broadly could be as the scientist i need to say it's not stinky when we intercept it it only gets stinky when it gets coasted <laughs> and it starts rotting and then it really really Good does point. stink but when it's out in the open ocean it's wonderful seaweed it's beautifully healthy the problem is when it goes coastal it becomes a problem so yeah so Again, what we're doing is stopping seaweed. it from getting to the rotting bit it's glorious yeah. beautiful seaweed <laughs> Given the magnitude of this blob, how can a, I, I'm not actually sure if it is Wally sized. What even is Pac-Man size, <laughs> given that it's literal digital representation? How could that possibly make a dent in such an enormous blob? How many Wallys do there need to be? We're starting out with our current, well, Alfie is two meters by four meters, about half a meter deep. When he grows up, he'll be a pretty large, maybe less cute version. <laughs> He's going to be around 10 metres by 4 metres um, and 1.5 metres deep. And we'll take about 16 tonnes of sargasm every time it does a drop. And it'll be able to do that around four to six times an hour. So oh, wow. at around 25% capacity rate, it will be able to remove around 8,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. I think 80,000 tonnes of sargasm. So to clean up like everything that there is in the Central Atlantic region, you'd need around a thousand of them. I don't think you'd want to go that big that fast. What we're trying to do is learn about carbon dioxide removal with seaweed and stop the coastal damage at this current stage. But you, the challenge is massive, but by breaking it down yeah. into tiny little blob, bloblets, we can meet the challenge, I hope. so. <laughs> we should yeah. write a children's book, Alfie and the Bloblets. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great content marketing idea. Yeah. Uh, it's a cartoon book that comes out bi monthly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love marketing ideas that are like 
intentionally old school. I'm always like, can we send someone like a fruit basket? I always want to do videos <laughs> like that. That oh yeah, publishing a serialized comic book is a very clever idea that appeals to me. With coastal <laughs> damage, though, I read wide wide Sargasso Sea in high school when I read Jane Eyre, and since then, this is the first time I've heard mm -hmm. anyone talk about sargassum. So. Uh what, what even happens? What happens to the coast if you just let this blob run wild? The Sargasso Sea is a great topic to bring up here because the Sargasso Sea is the only sea that's actually defined. It has no land boundaries. It's actually just a mass of water. Hmm. So it's kind of circulating around. It's very stable. It's a beautiful area full of wildlife. But what we're talking about with the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt is seaweed that has probably come out of that and then has seeded an entirely new region of the ocean. And as Paddy said earlier with ocean acidification and the warming of the oceans as well as all that nutrient runoff we're now fueling seaweed growth in different areas so it's going from the west coast of africa it's growing all the way across the atlantic and then it's sweeping into the sort of gulf of mexico and um and then it's hitting the land and that's where it's causing a problem because of course the sargasso sea constantly moving around but ultimately it stays in the same place this stuff is moving across and when it hits the coast that's when you're getting all your problems yeah, so I was actually just recently down in the Yucatan Peninsula and in Quintana Roo, and it was Sargassum City. And mm. I talked to some friends about it. So a friend of mine owns an apartment down there and invited us down and was saying how much money that the hotels and the government is spending to clean up the Sargassum. And I found one statistic here that says it's costing about a million US dollars for offshore Sargassum barriers and that they can run up to $100 per linear foot. And so that's, and then there's there's also wow. hotels that are spending thousands of dollars daily, if not weekly, to just hire people to shovel sargassum off the beaches. They're also doing like clever things like, you know, undercutting beaches so that there's like a shelf that catches the sargassums, so that there's a strip of clean beach, because it really is mm -hmm. just flooding these beaches. And to Mike's point, it might not be smelly in the ocean where it's beautiful and the great habitat, but on the beach, it is rotting and it does not smell good. You've got a health impact there with those noxious gases coming off to humans. But I mean, probably the, the bigger impact is on the sort of coastal erosion as you're removing it. You're also smothering coral reefs. You're causing massive anoxic zones. As it rots, all those nutrients go back in and then and fuels microbial growth. It's, it's an absolutely horrible situation. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And so there's all sorts of, you know, people out there trying to use barges and shoveling and whatever they can to get this out. It seems like a real opportunity for potentially multiple revenue streams. First of all, we talk a lot about CDR needing multiple revenue streams. And I'm sure somebody would want to at least let you, but more likely even pay you to clean this stuff up them is have you found that to be the case yeah, yeah. I, mean, I worked for quite a few years trying to find some value in the sargass and biomass trying to convert it into fuels fertilizers feeds things like that the problem is that, that paddy alluded to earlier is a lot of the heavy metals in it make it very difficult to do anything like that there are lots of really cool entrepreneurs out there trying to sort of do something valuable with it making it into tourist items and things like that and even bricks to make houses the problem is with millions and millions of tons turning up and in different locations you can't control where it's going to go when it's going to go there's so many variables to so to create a sort of a sustainable industrial process is very very challenging with this biomass because it's so uncontrollable and when it is there it's 
kind of overwhelms you. So it's kind of, it's, it's feast and famine, really, which is really difficult to create sustainable industries around it. So that's why with our approach of intercepting it offshore, you know it's always going to be there and you can track it from space. So you sort of get rid of all those variables, really. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, or we can work with the variables that it offers us. I think to go back to the multiple revenue stream question, I think there's definitely potential there. At the moment, we're more in the realm of fielding invitations to go and you know, participate and test and do pilots in different areas. And we're, we're quite of the mind that this is, this is like another climate change disaster that's hitting these nations. And not all of them have the money to do anything about it. In fact, very few of them do. So a lot of our modeling is around revenue sharing with nations who are looking at trying to do something about this, trying to, I suppose, unleash or leverage their blue economies where they have them. There's certainly, I would say, we're certainly of the mind that there could be a secondary revenue stream, but we're very conscious of things like climate justice, the poverty of a lot of these places, the fact that a lot of them have actually just abandoned the coasts that are being inundated with sargasm. And, and a lot of that tourism has been shut down. The Mexican region that you know you were in is is certainly one of them that is actually kind of engaging with and spending a lot of money and fighting back and trying to do things like dig away parts of their beach which is probably going to cause a ton of erosion over time so there's definitely it's it sort of we haven't found like a one-size-fits-all kind of model at the moment we're engaging with different stakeholders and seeing what kinds of appetites they are largely speaking we're talking to countries that don't have the money to to, to engage with that but you could imagine in the future there being something like a tourist tax especially where it's carbon credits staying within a country and that sort of tying in with the country's footprint and that that kind of approach might work i think in the future but it might be a bit early it's a bit early for us to say like this is definitely what the carbon dioxide removal piece looks like this is what the tourism income piece looks like and then figuring out where the sort of where the carbon credits and additionalities and exactly kind of what activity lies where ends up being we're very focused on the carbon dioxide removal angle because we think there's just so much potential in the sargasm itself to learn and then also in seaweed more broadly for carbon dioxide removals on a much larger scale it's really interesting what you said about the costs as well of cleanup because mm -hmm. We, I tried to get a, a grip on this a few years back, and it's really difficult to get accurate numbers because everyone who's involved in the industry who's having to remove this seaweed is downplaying the problem. Because if you say that I'm spending this amount on removing all this seaweed, you're, it's not just the boast, but you're actually raising awareness of the problem. So people are actually downplaying the problem. I mean, there's very little media, social media on, on sargassum when COVID hit, for example, because tourists weren't traveling. So the, the problem went away, whereas it's back with a vengeance this year as the sort of the whole world is reopened, really. So it's really interesting to sort of try and get a grip on it. And at the same time, if you look at the people who are trying to help out on the beaches, saying I removed X number of tons, you know, people take a lot of pride in that. So they say, well, maybe instead of removing one truckload, I removed 10 truckloads just to show that they're really, really helping. So getting accurate numbers on the on the cost is really, really challenging. So It seems like it has an advantage over other carbon removal methods because the environmental justice component of this seems pretty straightforward. I can imagine for other types of carbon removal, the siting has a potential neo-colonial concern. People are worried about people coming in and changing the demographics or economy in some sort of damaging or just unwelcome way. 
And this seems like it's actually solving a problem for people who are most impacted and thus is able, you know, unless you're doing something pretty foolish, able to sidestep a lot of these concerns and actually be involved in addressing them rather than just being neutral. It seems like potentially even a straightforward positive. Is this an accurate read? Yeah. We think so. I mean, it's yeah, definitely I it over the plate a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're just so doing their PR for them. Are you We try to be got good. <laughs> yeah, we so we definitely see this. And one of the reasons why we decided to do this was because of the, the terrible side effects that it's causing. And, and Mike's been working in this, like you said, for what, like nine years now. Yeah. Um, I mean, a theme throughout my research career has been trying to um, make cleanup operations pay for themselves. And actually, especially in the areas where local governments can't afford the cleanup operations, the problems are allowed to fester. So this is the culmination of about 20 years of work. <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of those problems that you look at and you say, like, this is horrible. There's no when it when it beaches and it, it isn't necessarily an enormous problem when it's out at sea it is significantly less diverse than the sargo sea because there's sort of one primary species which is winning i suppose as an invasive species which means that it's not quite as much of a well i'd say much less of a vibrant habitat but when it when it comes into into the coast it's you know it's causing human health problems it's causing complete destruction of ecosystems it's destroying tourism it's it's even so bad in some places that the fishing boats can't get out into physically can't get out into the sea so you know the the knock-on effects that it's having are really they can be really tremendous and that's in the last year or so like it's been something that's for me become something that i look at and go oh my goodness this is like very anxiety inducing in the way that sort of general climate change can be so that's um yeah it's it's not it's not great when it comes in very very large amounts and it's doing so on an increasingly regular basis i really love what you said about the kind of justice components here because as is common with climate change and effects of climate change is a lot of these coastal communities that have contributed the least are bearing the Mm -hmm. worst brunt of climate change and as you point out really this is being caused by runoff and fertilizers largely from the amazon is my understanding and from Brazil's deforestation projects. And yet here it is impacting, you know, small island nations. Speak to us a little bit about this pilot you have going. Is it with Antigua? Yeah, we're going to Antigua next month. Or Alfie is going to Antigua next month. And we'll take some time to get there. So we're starting in, in May to do our first, like, in full robot trials of interception and thinking and start to take baseline data of the areas where we'll hopefully be doing the thinking uh, longer term yeah like absolutely like you say there's just a a lot of these small island nations that are being terribly terribly impacted in an increasingly consistent way if you go down a bit further south to sort of Barbados and St Lucia which are lovely places the sargasm's coming in almost all year now you can see it on the satellite kind of swirling around and and not really going away which it used to when this problem first started in 2011 so we're very hopeful that the pilot will go very well and that we'll be able to demonstrate that we can intercept and think in a consistent and efficient way with Alfie and then you know we'd like to open up the opportunity for, for other areas to host pilot especially because for us like 
the purpose of doing a pilot is to learn as quickly as we can. So if we can run more of them in different places, that means that we can have more consistent and ongoing learnings happening. Whereas if we've got, you know, one place, we have to wait for the sargasm to come at the right time and then go and, and go and learn as much as we can as quickly as possible. So, yeah, we hope to expand to, to more areas quite quickly. This is so in line with so many of the conversations we've been having about carbon removal, where you guys sound relatively confident about the technology and you're developing this really interesting project and it comes down to the business model innovations and the social acceptability and the climate justice and sort of who's responsible elements that it sounds like are maybe, I mean, you didn't say this directly, but are also like incredibly difficult knots that you're working on. So I, that just so tracks with what we've been talking about where there's obviously, I'm sure you're having technolo- technological challenges, but there's these other bigger questions of how to even fund it and how to even exist that are may- maybe even more complicated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's been, and maybe we can sort of talk about this more broadly, but there's been a shift, I think, in the last few months, really, from direct air capture and sort of closed system carbon dioxide removal being the most popular, probably because they're the most measurable and they have, you know, you can account for sort of every molecule. And what we're looking at is really like a very open system, which is completely the other end of the spectrum, which it felt like for a bit there wasn't being pushed forward as much as as the closed system approaches. And I think now we're starting to see some traction and some momentum in the in the direction of people accepting that we have to, we do have to, if we're going to get to this very large amount of carbon dioxide removal, start to explore open systems. But we must do that very thoughtfully. You know, in our case, I think with biomass thinking in the oceans, albeit of a problematic one, which should be beneficial overall because it's causing so much damage on the coast. We still need to make sure that we're getting buy-in, that we're properly explaining what we're doing, and that we're most importantly proving what we're doing and then tracking it and making sure that, you know, what we think is going to happen on in the deep ocean and what, what we think the effects of it are going to be, which are we think very minimal or we wouldn't be doing this, are indeed the case. So there's lots and lots of you know, measurement, verification, reporting, monitoring involved in our plans. And also, we hope that a lot of that, those findings will first will be quite clear. And secondly, we will disseminate them quite widely because, you know, like you say, it's not just does the technology work and can we remove carbon this way, but also is it acceptable? How do people socially view it? And I mean, in a sense, really just trying to move forward thoughtfully and be in a position where people feel like they can trust us, but probably most importantly, being able to move the whole industry forward at the same time, because we're not going to be the only people in the world that do this by a long, long shot. And the last thing this industry needs is someone kind of running out there, like sticking a flag in the ground and going, you know, I'm going to go and do this. And then everyone else go, wait a minute, that's not, that doesn't seem like a great idea. So what we're really trying to do is like bring people on the journey with us and be as open as possible. And I mean, you know, hand on heart, if this turns out to not be a great idea, I think it's a thing that we shouldn't do. And I like, I, I hope that seaweed generation will turn around and say, actually, we've tried it and we don't think it's a great idea, but we can use seaweed for these other things instead. So that's kind of, I suppose, a start. We're trying to be quite pragmatic about it, I suppose. From two different angles, how's the reception been from people who live in Antigua, I read a book years ago, maybe you know her, uh, Jamaica Kincaid. 
She wrote a book called A Small Place. She's an Antiguan writer, but quite critical of the tourist trade and like off-islander involvement. And then also, how's been your reception at the carbon removal community? I know seaweed sinking, biomass sinking has had its share of headwinds here. Is this something that you've seen as well? Answering these two um, questions will take the rest of the show, so I can now just yeah. go on We'll <laughs> just hang here and discuss. <laughs> so from the perspective of the Antiguan people that we have interacted with, there's, I would say, and Mike, correct me if you think this is not quite right, I say there's generally quite an open-mindedness about people being able to come in and, and sort of contribute to helping with the problem, some of the problems that they're having on the island. And I don't think that they... They've been very positive, very open in general to bringing in new technologies, but they certainly want to be at the center of it. You know, like they they want to create an economy that will benefit Antigua and they want to be able to use their ocean space in a way that will be good for their future. And I think that's absolutely fair. So whilst we're kind of doing pilots and we're developing a technology, like they are our partners or they will be our partners in this. This is a massive problem in these island nations. But as we're talking here, it's a massive opportunity as well. And the key thing is, it's an opportunity for the island nations, not just seaweed generation. And our journey will be sort of doing it together. And a big part of what we're doing in my role is is the education side of things and developing citizen science programs and developing a whole seaweed bioeconomy across the region. Because once this sargassum is gone, because, you know, ideally in 20, 30, 40 years, we'll have removed so much of this sargassum that it'll be manageable. But then we've got perfect ground for growing seaweed, but the seaweeds that we want in controlled manner. So to do that, we need we need the local communities. So we need to be working together. And, and that's really important to what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I second that for sure. And I think there's a lot of excitement. I guess if, if you think about the way that these island nations tend to be set up, they're quite small land masses with massive amounts of water. And the only thing that's been done, economically speaking, or the biggest thing that's been done, economically speaking, with those waters is fishing, which is at the moment under quite a lot of stress and the fish stocks are quite low. Oh, and the second is tourism. And Trin- isn't like Trinidad like big in oil? Like there's some oil production happening too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a bit of oil and sort of like of mining in the ocean spaces. Not so much in Antigua, I don't think, but in, in some areas there are. Now, if there's an opportunity to start doing carbon dioxide removals, growing seaweed biomass, expanding that that blue economy. That's quite exciting to a lot of these places. And will, you know, likely, like Mike says, make up a big part of what they're able to do in the future and what we would like to, you know, help develop the technology to do. And then the second very meaty question <laughs> was the yeah, sorry about that. It's not, it's not good hosting. No, I'll good. be the first to say. Yeah. <laughs> So I think there's there's sort of two main buckets of, of carbon dioxide removal thinking, I suppose. And it's actually maps quite distinctly to the the closed system and the open system techniques that I alluded to before. There are people in the industry who much prefer closed loop systems and very, very measurable, very sort of where's this molecule going from here to there and exactly kind of, you know, being able to say without a shadow of a doubt that this is happening to this thing. And then there are people who appreciate on a more broad scale that we need to do this on a massive scale and that every approach really does need to be explored. And we're too early to be able to throw out approaches. And and people who have sort of step back and look at the problem here and are saying sort of, you know, 
10 billion tons is an awful lot. How are we going to do that? Well, look, the Earth system has been doing a pretty good job of that for an awfully long time already. Um, and people who think that way are much more you know, comfortable and, and excited about the approach that we're taking, especially because really what we're trying to do is learn about, you know, seaweed biomass thinking and what does that mean? So I think more people are starting to become comfortable with the idea of open systems. And I'd expect or we hope that that will continue at least to the point where we can start getting data and reporting back on our findings. I think people are okay with it as long as it isn't participating in carbon accounting strictly. So companies are emitting fossil tons that we can measure and there's an indeterminate amount going through an open system and that we don't really fully understand. But I find when you relax the standard of, okay, we're doing a ton for ton carbon accounting negation scheme for balancing our carbon budget, I think the enthusiasm goes up a fair amount. Mm. Also, I love that uh, Di Ellis and John Sanchez piece that just came out on. Yes. Uh, yeah, we're coming for you, as Christoph used to say. We should do <laughs> an episode on that. Um, but yeah, I hope I hope that's true. I know there's a tendency to really want to know exactly what's happening, and it makes sense. It's an honorable impulse, but it's also pretty limiting too. And it boxes us into tech that, while easy to measure, may not be the most effective way to go in all cases. It's a case of where, you know, how does the expression go? It's uh, it's from measure what matters. It's like if you can only, it's like the thing that you can measure, you will optimize for and you will max out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the kill ratio in Vietnam. Like it didn't actually translate into whether or not the U.S. was winning or not. It was just like how many bodies are there on the ground after a battle? And then it turns out many of them had weapons on them. It turns out they were all VC. Every single person who died was VC. Of course, that was not true, but it was easy to measure. And so it gets maximized. And that was the most. I love, I love that that was your analogy. You yeah. Dark on that analogy, yeah, there, Ross. <laughs> Let's go back to Wally. Is, is yeah. that the bit you can edit out? That the absolute of man, reality of man here. We <laughs> metal jacket on you as well. Some, sometimes we, sometimes we talk about how to distinguish between all the other climate podcasts out there, and I don't think I don't think you're getting carbon accounting to Vietnam War comparisons on many other. <laughs> podcast so folks you know it is what i do you know <laughs> come for the great guests stay for ross's uh historical analogies well i'm a little curious you know mike you said you've been working on this for 20 years and so it's pretty clear that like you know this is your passion project this is your area of focus how did you rope patty in or did she rope you in or how did that all come about so i i, I said i've been working on this concept for 20 years. I've been working on sargassum for just under 10 because these blooms have only been Oh, just, just under 10. Just under 10. <laughs> 10's the, a long time, a whole decade. Atlantic, <laughs> that's a long time inside. So a lot can happen. Um, the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt is only about 12 years old. It's a relatively new phenomenon. So I, I couldn't have been working on it for 20 years, but the mindset is in, in this approach, this startup approach. So basically, uh, Paddy and I always have a laugh about this, but... Um, I'm apparently a B-list celebrity in the seaweed world. And when mm -hmm. Paddy wanted to get into seaweed, she found me and asked if I'd do a podcast, which is now somewhere on YouTube. Um, and we had a chat <laughs> about seaweed. And I was telling her... what did her, you say to me? I, I can't remember exactly. Would you like to paraphrase it? I, I could paraphrase. So this is, we didn't get this on video. Our second conversation was what we did the podcast on. But he basically told me I was totally mental 
And why would you want to grow more seaweed? Because I wanted to start with cultivation when there was this huge problem and go and look at this problem and find me something to do with it. So I did. <laughs> so I've been coming at it from a, uh, here is some sargassum. I need to put it into a product and a physical product. Uh, and I've been trying to make that work for ages and I just couldn't, couldn't make it work. And then Paddy sort of wandered along into my world and just said, carbon dioxide removal and i was like oh my god that's a thing um and then it's, it's i was kind of, a bit like wally in this yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> so together we came at it from very very different points of view and and it was yeah it was just a match made in heaven and here we are now discussing it on this podcast so. yeah, yeah i see yeah i'm really excited that that there is this concept of taking an existing problem and bringing in carbon dioxide removal. Because I mean, obviously we already have the existing problem of too many parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, right? That exists. But so many solutions that we're looking at are focused on getting those molecules out of the atmosphere and storing them, you know, biosphere, lithosphere, somewhere away from the atmosphere. But that you're almost coming from the sargassum problem and then the CO2 removal is almost like the co-benefit, it seems. It almost seems like the, the primary thing is getting rid of the sargassum and then the CO2 becomes the co-benefit. Ross, you're giving me a look. Is a that bit. what you're going to say? Is there, is there anything else like that, actually, where, where carbon removal is the co-benefit? Is there any other case that is, I guess maybe regenerative ag is something kind of like that, too. Is there anything that's... Well, biochar has existed for oh, okay, way okay. longer than the carbon removal. Of course, you have thing. to come in with the biochar. Uh, I mean, <laughs> kind of similar in a way, burying biomass. We're actually very similar to the biochar, but much more intelligent uh, in that oh, we snap. don't have to... <laughs> well, edit, edit that out. No. no, that's the title. That's the title. No, that's, that's, that's fighting to... We're the thinking person's biochar. Um <laughs> But essentially with biochar, you take biomass and you char it so it's biologically unavailable and then you store it essentially in a very biologically available area, which is why you have to char it. Of course, we're storing it in the deep ocean, which is not sort of available to the surface cycle. So we don't have to char it. So we don't have any of those energetic costs of charring it. So we're effect effectively, it's much more simple and, and effective in terms of carbon capture. So. Yeah, it's more. It's definitely very efficient. I think our sort of it's solar powered automated robot without having to actually really process anything is it's, the LCA is pretty good. We haven't gotten sort of a. I mean, I'm sure folks can look at your website, but just like the short version of how how it works. I mean, it's a robot that sinks seaweed, but what are the steps? How does it get it? You know, I don't even really quite know. Mike, you want to take that one, or shall I? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one, and then Paddy can correct me. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so good. basically, our robot takes the seaweed, which is floating on the surface of the water, collects it, and then it takes it down to about 200 meters down, just in a vertical translocation. And at that point, the pressure of the water compresses the seaweed, so it no longer can float. Just like if a diver was taken from the surface and put 200 meters down, they'd all feel that compression on their on their head. Uh, the seaweed is compacted, uh, the, the air in it is compacted, and it basically it sinks down and we do that in areas of around 4,000 meters deep. So the seaweed goes to the very, very deep ocean. And if you think about the distance, four or five kilometers from the top for the, the water there, um, basically once that material is down there, it can't move to the top again. So it's effectively removed from the surface cycle. So it's, it's a very, very simple process. 
There's no biological chemical processing. It's just a physical translocation, and we let physics do the rest. And it's essentially mimicking the biological pump, which is nature's way of storing carbon anyway. And that's why the oceans, the deep oceans, has about 37 trillion tons of carbon, which is far more than anywhere else on the planet. So the, and how did, what mechanism pushes it down to the 200 feet, how did, or meters? Or? Gravity. So if it, it gets it, it comes into the it comes into the to the robot and then something what 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 pushes how does that is there a the, the robot goes down oh okay okay that's what I yeah. wasn't I wasn't oh, yeah. oh, okay sorry. I understand yeah. the robot moves down too oh cool meters. so at about oh, 135 neat. meters the balance between floating sargassum becoming sinking sargassum occurs we take it to 200 to make four. Uh, and release it from there. And then the robot will go back to the surface and do the same again. So it'll do that yeah. four times an hour, 12 hours a day, just slowly nibbling away, Wally style, Pac-Man Rumba style also. Uh, <laughs> and... You're going to have to name the next one Wally. We're going to have to name the next one Wally. Another thing that the algorithm does is um, it films every one of those drops um events and gathers data for it so we take that data in and give it as proof or one of our mrv points for people who are purchasing carbon dioxide removal which is we, we think a really important part of it is reporting back the data and what about cost you know i i've this sounds expensive robots sound expensive talk to me about costs now and what is your projected hopes and dreams for future costs which is how i would frame it to any cdr company what are your hopes and <laughs> dreams in the, in the future cost our hopes and dreams um so at the moment we're selling tons for about 350 uh, sorry 250 dollars and that's across the first sort of like three years of, of vintage which i still just can't get over i love that we call them vintages we're we're projecting with the larger version of Alfie that we'll be able to bring the costs down below a hundred ton a hundred dollars a ton um pretty quickly. And that's mostly due to the fact that it's just so reusable. Everything on everything that we're building is reused over and over and over and over and over again. So there's no nothing else is being dropped into the ocean apart from the sargasm. And then everything is solar powered, so there's not really fuel costs ongoing. So the the largest cost we have is maintenance as we you know keep going with uh, with the robots we are projecting that we'll be able to produce them for around 100,000 to 150,000 dollars per robot and they'll be dropping around or they'll be removing around 8,000 tons of carbon per year so 100 dollars a ton the sort of return rate on that is quite short that's our hope and dream so we'll see if that actually <laughs> turns to into reality um the 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 current version of Alfie we've we've produced for thirty thousand dollars, so that's pretty cost effective. What are the regulatory rules and regimes you have to contend with to run these? <laughs> I just know it's very complicated with ocean stuff. Yeah, is it, uh, is it so... London Protocol mostly, or what else are you looking at? Well, we're working in exclusive economic zones of countries, so we're within the juris the legal jurisdiction of of um in the pilot case Antigua and Barbuda and the vast majority the vast majority of the Caribbean get well below the thousand meters of of depth which is the kind of deep ocean delineation we're trying to optimize for deeper than that because that just means longer term carbon dioxide removal but for the most part we'll be working with countries who are having a problem with sargasm in their exclusive economic zone to to deal with the problem 
um, at least you know for the foreseeable future that that's the plan. There's this organization or company I'm not sure called the Ocean Cleanup, and they've gotten like a lot of press. They they collect the garbage in the Pacific like garbage gyre with those like. I just kind of feel like there's some parallel there. Are you guys like aware of what they do? Is there any? Have you looked at their technology? I mean, I'm just kind of not knowing much about this space. I'm just curious what you kind of think of that or if you've been aware of that. It's really interesting what they do, but their problem, it's not a biomass that they're intercepting. It's basically a a plastic product. So whereas we can just sink in situ Mm -hmm. because it's a natural biomass, they unfortunately have to take it out of the ocean and take it away and either recycle it or make it into expensive products that people can wear as fleeces and things and try and subsidize the process. So um, it's it's similar on the surface, quite literally, but it's very a very different process that we're, we're actually doing. But, you know, I think it's, it's great that people are starting to put a profile on, on the ocean and the cleanup. And, I, you know, the, the, the more the more care that's put into restoring the ocean environment, the, the, the better the world will be. You know, 70 percent of the planet is covered in water. So we need to start sort of taking care of it. And, um, you know, the more people like that are, that are active, the better, I think. Just how can people get in touch with you or if people want to get involved or if, if people want to support you? What, what are your immediate needs that you want to put out to our audience? Well, that's a good question. Um, so <laughs> we're we're always looking to uh, talk to more countries and states and honestly local governments that are having issues with this. So if anybody's in Mexico, Belize, Florida, probably Louisiana fairly soon, or any of the Caribbean nations, please get in touch. There's a contact on our website. And then we'd love to chat to scientists, anyone who's out there thinking about, you know, doing some ocean research and they want to come and do some deep ocean observations in our in our pilot site. That'd be awesome. And anyone who wants to buy carbon dioxide removal, we are here. <laughs> We're doing small pre-sales to mostly pay for the next, the, you know, the pilots and for the next kind of couple of years of testing and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, please get in touch. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you had a great time with us learning about seaweed. We really don't cover uh, ocean stuff and seaweed stuff nearly enough. There's a lot of interesting work happening over there. Send this to a friend. Help us get the word out. Give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That also helps us quite a lot. And thanks so much for listening. Have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.